from modern culture, children's literature, and sports, these are all what can be called taunt songs. They can be used as a demonstration of one group's power or superiority over another. And they are used that way. Um, They can inspire courage and confidence in people that that need a little boost. It's like we're not feeling very confident. Let's sing a taunt song against the opponents. Um, They can be a kind of pain reliever for the marginalized and powerless as they vainly boast against their invincible opponents. There's no way we're going to win this thing, but let's do a taunt song nonetheless. It'll make us feel better. They are a part of national histories, racial and class relations, military strategies, and they have a very long history. As we're going to see in Habakkuk chapter 2, we even find them in the Bible. Many times in the Old Testament prophets, um, even Jesus used them. Woe to you, Pharisees and teachers of the law. That, that's, a, that's a taunt song sort of formula, or, or what we call in the Bible, or Bible scholars call a woe oracle. But it's essentially a taunt song. Woe to you. It, it's largely what uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 consists of, at least the last part of Habakkuk chapter 2. But before we get into uh, our text for today, I want us to kind of bring us up to speed and remind us of where we've been and what we've talked about already in the book of Habakkuk. Um, Huge thank you to Chris Rhodes for sharing with us last week in what really is kind of the key section for the whole book um, and the prophecy of Habakkuk. But uh, any of you remember from a couple of weeks ago, the three C words that I said are what you need to know about the book of Habakkuk. Anybody remember any of those C words? Cucumber. See, that's the one, yeah, that, in the first service, that's the one people remember too. Cucumber was one of the words. Carpet. And then the first one, Carchemish. Carchemish is the name of this um, ancient city in northern Syria where this great battle took place. It was when the Babylonians really solidified their power as the world power of that time by crushing the alliance that had been formed by the Assyrians desperate to kind of hang on to their power, which they weren't going to, in alliance with the Egyptians. And the Babylonian army came and crushed them at the Battle of Carchemish, 605 B.C. That's significant because that provides the context for Habakkuk's um, prophecy. He was a contemporary of the prophet Jeremiah and he's writing at the time when the Assyrians have fallen in power. They've already taken out the northern kingdom but now they're they're, they're in decline. In fact, they're just about done and are done. And around this time of the Battle of Carchemish is when um, Habakkuk is giving his prophecy and it is directed toward his own people but in light of the rise of the... the, um, uh, Babylonians, also called the uh, the, the, uh, Cal- um, the the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans, um, same same people group, two different names. That they are rising in power. They're they're the threat to everybody now, and that's the context. Cucumber. That's uh, that's Habakkuk's name. It's an Akkadian name. Habakkuk. Um, at, scholars seem to think it's a bit of a mystery but they think that his name actually is a name of some sort of garden plant so what I said was we we could call him Cucumber we could translate his name Cucumber the prophet Cucumber and as I shared and I'm going to do it again because I work for this yeah here it comes that Cucumber was in a bit of a pickle because what he was seeing in, in life around him among his own people 
to start with, did not match up with what he believed about God. The holiness of God, the power of God, the justice of God, the perfection of God. He, he believes, and God has revealed himself this way. But he's looking at what's happening around him, and they, he's having a hard time matching these things up. And so, so carpet, the last of the three words, is um, he calls God on the carpet. He, he un, somewhat unusually, it doesn't never happen, but it's rare in the prophets. Usually prophets are speaking on behalf of God mostly to their people. It's kind of a horizontal thing. They're getting the vertical word from God and then it's going out to the people and that's what prophets tend to do. You guys need to shape up. You're, you've broken covenant. You need to repent. If you don't repent, there's going to be curses just like God told us. Um, nevertheless, in the end, you can trust in God because God is good and it's about Him and not about us. And they're giving this word to their people. Well, in Habakkuk's case, mostly what we see him doing is actually talking not to the people, but mostly talking to God. Almost entirely throughout his book. He's having this dialogue with God. And in his case, again, somewhat uniquely, God is answering him and answering him pretty much right away. There's this dialogue going back and forth between the two of them. He has issues. He has questions. And, uh, and God actually answers them. His first complaint has to do with his own people. God, are you looking and seeing what's happening with your people here? They are completely messed up. They are, they are trashing justice. They aren't behaving right. Righteousness is out the window. Powerful people are rising in power through unfair means. The wicked seem to be prospering among your own people and you don't seem to be doing anything about it. Are you even seeing this? Do you care? And that's really his first complaint. In response to that, God says, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm in control. I've got, I'm working my plan. It is going to unfold. I, in fact, let me tell you, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they are going to be my instrument of discipline against my unfaithful, wicked, straying people. And this leads to Habakkuk's second complaint, which you looked at last week with, uh, with Chris. It's like, what? Okay, now I got a bigger problem than I had, first of all, because these guys are way worse than us. They're pagans. They, I mean, your people are messed up, but they're still your people. And, and, and these guys are way worse than us. How can you raise them up? How can you bless them? How can you give them victory? How can, how can they triumph over us? I mean, in the, uh, let's weigh things out here. I mean, our people are really messed up, but, but these guys are, w- are way worse. You can't do this. And there's a second question. And at that point, then, God responds with what really is the essence of the message and, and kind of the, the, the center of, of, the, of the message of Habakkuk. And that is, he says, basically, look, the, the, the wicked are going to get theirs. They, they aren't going to get away with this. And our, our woe oracles that we're going to look at today are, are an extension of that. It's kind of spelling out why and how the wicked will not ultimately triumph. Don't worry. But then he says something that really is the, the essence here. And it gets quoted by the Apostle Paul. You find it in the book of Hebrews. And there's one other place and it's, it's just slipped my mind in Corinthians or something. But this is um, Habakkuk is quoted. This most famous part of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.4. We're going to read it again today. The righteous, but the righteous, the, the, the wicked's going to get his, but the righteous will live by faith. Essentially what he's saying is, look, the wicked aren't going to get away with anything. The righteous will live by faith. They will attach themselves to a lasting reality, a higher calling, a transcendent motivation, a different way of making decisions and evaluating results than the normal things that happen in the world. It is not essentially, and this is really important, and God's people always mess up on this, and you can see it historically in the scriptures, and it still, I think, happens today, that, that we have this sense in which we're called 
line, we're called to play by the world's rules. And what God is going to do for us is He's going to help us win and actually play the world's game better. Win against others according to worldly patterns. That, that we'll get power because God will be on our side. The, the God of good luck. The God who blesses His people so that we can triumph in the world. And what Habakkuk is helping us to see and it's picked up by the New Testament writers as well is that no, actually what God is calling His people to is a completely different way of life. A completely different way of looking at things, of evaluating things, of, of making decisions. When are lose in the world, we're going to behave as God's people. And we might, it might work nicely for us sometimes, and it may not work at all sometimes, but that doesn't matter because we are going to live by righteousness because part of what God is telling us is that is what is going to last. And in the overall scheme of things, never mind what may be happening right now, today, in the ways of the world, eventually it is that way that is going to continue and all of the ways worldly wicked ways are going to end sooner or later okay um, actually my friend Larry Stocker when we were talking about this this week he said this it was rather profound so I'm going to quote him he said, he said this it's not so much about great historical conquests and competing empires and the balance of international power it's about what is happening in individual human hearts in relationship to God that's what this living in righteousness really boils down to. Now, I will hasten to add, because we're, we're Presbyterians, we're thoughtful, hopefully we're biblical, and, and the scriptures will help us with this. That doesn't mean that we don't have an effect on the world. Salt and light, you know, you're the salt of the, of the world, you're the light of the world, Jesus said. That living that way, living in that righteous, or working toward that righteous relationship with God, is going to spill out into the world around us. It will have an effect on the world. And, and I'd, I'd quickly add, politically, we have the wonderful opportunity as folks who live, are blessed to live in this country, that, that this way of, of uh, vertical living in righteousness with God can even spill out into how we participate in the political processes of our, of our nation. We can behave Christianly and vote Christianly and all those sorts of things. Um, so it, it's not that it just stays in here. It does leak out. But it's not about winning against the world in the world's ways. Did, did you catch that? Because what happens when you do that, I'll, I'll stop in just a second because this really, I don't want to go too far in this, but what happens when you do that is you end up just being the new Babylonians. I mean, you start out by saying, okay, we've got to correct all of this. We've got to do things better. And in order for us to accomplish this, we've got to bash the bad guys. So the first thing we need to do is do things the world's ways. Do it by power and, and manipulation and lying if necessary for the good purpose. But once we get there, it'll, be all, it'll all be different. Except that never happens, does it? You, you end up then, oh, once you get power, you've got to preserve power. And now all of a sudden, you are the new Babylonians. And all the stuff that God has to say about the wicked is true for you, just like it was for your predecessors. Okay. Um, we're called to something completely different. Now, the context for what we're going to see in chapter 2 begins with, um, with the overarching theme that I've been sharing with you for Habakkuk is the burden of righteousness. That Habakkuk has a burden. It's the burden of righteousness, of, of right relationship with God, with his people, with, with reality. He has, God has told him what's up. He's told him what to say, and he, and he has to do it. It's not very comfortable. 
It'd be easier just to say, yeah, whatever, and just kind of ignore it and get on with life. It's the burden of righteousness. And in this sense, he speaks for all of the righteous within Israel, within Judah, and he speaks for all of the righteous today. Those that care about these things and and can't help but care about these sorts of things, about what's right, um, what's good, what God says. It's the burden of righteousness, but, but here's the deal for today. Habakkuk will help us to see that there is a burden that turns out to be greater much greater than the burden of wickedness, than the burden of righteousness, and that is this. I just, I, I spoiled the punchline. Much greater burden is the burden of wickedness. If it's tough to carry that weight of righteousness, honestly, in the overall scheme of things, whether you feel it right now or not, the burden of wickedness is much greater. We're going to see that. The burden of righteousness is a great burden indeed, but it is nothing compared to the burden of wickedness. So here's, and if you want to follow along in your um, sermon notes that I gave you with your bulletin, on the back of your bulletin, the chilling reality of biblical woe oracles is that they reveal chilling reality. Okay? They show us more than human emotion and wishful whistling in the dark chanting. They offer more than a pain reliever for the powerless of the world. You see, with biblical woe oracles, what we see here is not just an expression of human emotion. It's not what the powerless say to make themselves feel better in the face of the powerful. It's not what people hope might happen, but they know it won't. Biblical woe oracles, because it's, it's the Bible, it's the Word of God, they show us eternal truth that transcends the apparent and immediate realities of life in the world. They give us God's eternal and omnipotent perspective on world events and human ambition. As such, they especially offer a word of warning to the powerful of the world. And the powerful, unfortunately, have reason to doubt the truth, dismiss the perspective, and ignore the warning. Why should they? It all seems to be working for them. They're the powerful. They're the ones in control. They're the empire today. Or or they're the people that have things going. They've got the world by the tail. They don't want to hear these oracle sorts of things. They certainly don't want to address the possibility that they are speaking not just wishful thinking for those that wish they were them but are actually speaking truth, ultimate truth, real truth that is going to come to pass. People naturally seeking power and tending toward wickedness will believe things that are simply not true because they want to. Let us call these things what a fool believes and be sure that we all tend toward such foolishness. God, through his cheeky prophet named Cucumber, Habakkuk and his five woes unmasks these foolish beliefs by showing us what was destined to happen and what actually did happen to the once fearsome marauding Babylonians and what happens to every person and people who seek and find power according to the wicked and violent patterns of the world. Since the Bible is the word of God and not merely the collective wisdom or wishes of men, when the prophet in the Bible says, woe to the arrogant, the greedy, the wicked, he is not merely expressing a vain hope or a heartfelt human wish. He is revealing the true nature of things. 
This isn't what the weak hope will happen to their powerful oppressors. This is what God says will happen to them. Here's how my Old Testament seminary professor, Dr. Leslie Allen, says it. Babylonian immorality contains the seeds of its own destruction. Before they even come to power, the seeds of their own demise are already in them. On the other hand, he says, Judeans who take a moral stand like Habakkuk have everything going for them in maintaining their loyalty to God. And so we see behind the description and condemnation of the destructive behaviors and the arrogant attitudes of the wicked and erroneous assumptions uh, of the, uh, that the wicked have, we also see behind all that their erroneous assumptions that they are making. What a fool believes. I, for me, it was helpful for me to see these woe oracles and ask myself, what do people actually think that leads them to buy this stuff? And, and so within that, you sort of, there's a revelation, I think, of what fools tend to believe, which we're going to get to. And so we are warned to avoid such deadly beliefs and instead, as the righteous, live by faith. So let's look at our text today. What I want to do is I'm going to read through it. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 through 20. A little at a time, I'm going to deal with each of the woes one at a time as we read through, okay? Hear the word of God. Habakkuk, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking now about the wicked, the oppressors, the, the Babylonians, Chaldeans. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these, speaking of these peoples that he has taken over, that he's conquered, shall not all these take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him and say. So now here's the introduction to the woe oracles. Here's, here's the context. One day, Babylonians, and remember, the prophet is saying this before they have even risen in power enough to actually move into Judah and conquer them. But it's going to happen. But before that even happens, the prophet is saying, you know, the day is going to come when those that you've oppressed, those that you've conquered, those that, whose families you have killed, those that you've carried off into, into exile, when they are going to stand up and they are going to taunt you. And they're going to be right. So there's the context. Okay, so now let's get into what a fool believes, the five woes of Habakkuk chapter 2. Reading on. Woe to him, you can see this word woe five times. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who awake, uh, those awake who will make you tremble? then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So here's the first thing that a fool believes. I can take from others and keep for myself. Uh, this is what I'm calling the doom of the grabber. Or the pocket woe. What you take from someone else, someone else will take from you. What belongs in someone else's pocket 
will not stay in yours. It is what we are given that we keep, not what we take. The righteous understand this and make an effort to live accordingly. In word and deed, they say no to what a fool believes. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. What a fool believes is this. My strength will keep me secure. This is the doom of the exploiter or what I'm calling the house woe. There is real security neither against the inevitable result of prosperity through exploitation nor against the fear that vainly demands such security. The ways of the world whereby exploitation we build our own house you can't build a secure enough perimeter to protect you against what's going to happen. And that security doesn't help you at all against the fear that comes with you into your house and lives with you all the time and demands that you have all this security around you. That fear's with you all the time. It's a way of life. And there's no security against it. Here's the way I came up with to, to say this in a pithy sort of way. It's, it's, a, it's a bit provocative, but I'm going to say it anyway. Especially for us. But I think there's truth in this. Gated communities are gutted communities. Gutted of any abiding sense of shalom, peace, rightness lacking in compassion, missing the joy of sharing life with neighbors. Again, I'm not, I'm not telling people, if you live in a, in a place where there's a gate and you have to put in a card and go in, I understand. It's the world that we live in. I'm not suggesting that you move. And I'm not suggesting that you tear down the gate. You get in trouble if you do that. I'm simply saying that we need to acknowledge, and Habakkuk, I think, is helping us, that... When we moved in, when we adopted this lifestyle, when this became part of, our, of how we do things, when we, when we started making houses and building security around it so we could keep out the riffraff, we chose a lifestyle that comes with liabilities within it, a, a, an attitude, a, a heart that, that has an effect on us. Frankly, I think the effect is happening whether we have gates around our houses or not. We don't have, I don't live in a gated community, but I live in America. I live in Reno. I live in the western United States. I don't know if it's different in other parts of the United States. I think it's a little different in other parts I've heard, especially in poorer areas. Somebody's just telling me today about having gone to another area of town here and seeing that people were just out mixing with each other. It was a poorer area of town. But people were just out talking to each other, having fun at the park, whatever. They knew each other. Not in my neighborhood. I don't know about yours. People don't know each other. People don't want to know each other. You knock on your neighbor's door and it is likely that their first response is one of suspect. What are you doing here? What do you want? We, we isolate ourselves. We like it. I suppose there's advantages, you know, just turn on your TV. 
You can have community with people who don't exist. We, we've given something up when we do that. And Habakkuk, I think, is helping us to see that. Oh, you built up all this security. Oh, good for you. You know, it doesn't work. And it's not security against some, some very important things. The righteous understand all of this and make an effort to live accordingly. In word and in deed, they say no to what a fool believes. Verse 12, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What do fools believe? They believe something like this. Conquerors, keepers, losers, weepers. This is what I call the doom of the vanquisher or the city or nation woe. The city or nation built and maintained by violence and not to the glory of God will be consumed by its own empty ways. Perhaps you've heard this saying, the first casualty of war is the truth. Have you heard that saying? I have. The discarding of truth, disregard for justice, disdain for mercy and lust for power necessary for building an empire are the very things that will bring it down. It's interesting to me, and again, we don't have time to go into this in a lot of depth, but what Habakkuk says here is talking about not only the reality that he's already alluded to, that, look, you can build your empire, but if you build it by oppression and violence, by conquering... Somebody else eventually is going to be raised up and they're going to conquer you just like you conquered them. It's the way the world works. You, you play by those rules, you're going to win by those rules, and then you're going to lose by those rules. And it's, it's always going to happen. But more than that, he's also talking about, when he says, uh, um, people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. Eventually, you build up this thing and it seems to go the way that within, the, the rot from within the empire, Roman Empire, you can read the history books, people talk about that in terms of America today, that, that the that what it was that got people together to work together to build this thing up won't last. And eventually people, next generations, a few generations down the road, they're asking themselves, why? And, and there's this sense of entitlement, this sense of, we're supposed to have all this. This is the way it's supposed to be. We don't have to work for it. We're not going to pay anything for this. And, and what happens is there's a, there's a deteriorating from within. People are saying, why? Uh, we weary, we're wearying ourselves for nothing. It always happens. So that there, and why is that? That's because, that's because things have been built and things are maintained in ways that are contrary to the ways of God. Ways that aren't lasting. Ways that people can't hang on to. Or more to the point, ways that don't hang on to them. People can't keep the reasons going apart from God, and that happens all the time. And he's alluding to that. The righteous understand this and make an effort to live accordingly. In word and in deed, they say no to what a fool believes. Hang on to your hats for this one. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, who pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. That's quite colorful language. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. 
The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. A fool believes that disgracing others proves and keeps my glory. It's the doom of the debaucher, or what I call culture woe. The shame of people indifferent to their neighbor's human dignity will be displayed for all to see. The man who uses drugs and alcohol against others to strip them of their dignity and expose their weakness will find that it is his naked shame that is being exposed. The culture that is apathetic toward common decency upheld among all people or that encourages shameful behavior toward one another is covered in a disgrace that will crush it. Now, does that sound contemporary? These words from 600 B.C., do they sound like they're pointed at us today? Are we a culture where people like to look at other people's nakedness? Hello? Is that part of our culture? They tell me, the statistics tell me it is. It's a huge part of our culture. Is this a culture where we're encouraged in a very broken sort of way to, to exercise our power over and against other people to feel better about ourselves and more powerful about ourselves if we can put other people down? If I can be part of, of the disgrace of somebody else their nakedness, their powerlessness. And, and I'm, if I'm the person in the room with the clothes on, I know there are places where you can go where other people don't have their clothes on. I feel a little more powerful, don't I? It's interesting. People, people in Reno, as far as I know, don't pay money to be able to go into some place downtown where they can take their clothes off and have everyone look at them. Ah, but they can go to a place where they can pay money and look at somebody else without their clothes on, right? And again, I'm not, I'm not just looking at this in terms of, of, of sexual immorality or that sort of thing, because I think, I think it's indicative of a whole way where it's about exposing other people's weakness, of, of being the, the powerful person because somebody else isn't. And what Habakkuk is saying is here, A, it doesn't work, this way is doomed to end, and oh, by the way, if you're one of those people, if you're the one in the room with your clothes on, it's your shame that is being exposed in the overall scheme of things. In a culture that affirms these sorts of things or turns a blind eye to these sorts of things, it is the disgrace of that culture that is being exposed. Whether people know it or not. And eventually people are going to know it. The righteous understand and make an effort to live according to these truths. In word and deed, they say no to what a fool believes. Finally, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? 
Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So what does a fool believe? A fool believes, I keep the life I want by choosing the God I want. It's the doom of the idolater, or what I'm calling the ultimate woe. To worship and serve false gods is to sell your soul for nothing and to maintain an unrequited love affair with death. This is the woe that's behind all of the others, I think. This is the woe that makes it possible for fools to believe what they believe. I will keep what I take. I can make myself strong enough to be absolutely secure in my own power. I can build an empire by violence and deception and then maintain its power. I can remind myself and others of my power and so enhance my glory by exploiting and exposing their weakness. Because the God I serve, named and given power by me, exists to support my purposes and only asks for what I want to give. That's a convenient God, but it's a false God. And it's a God that will lead us into, if not cause in us, a deadliness even while we're alive and eventually death. Here is the truth. God is in his holy temple. The place of holiness is where God is. And there is no other God in there with him. And in the end, there will be no rival voice to be heard above or beside God's eternal word by which all things that are have been created. So now we are wise to let all the world keep silence before our God and before his eternal truth that transcends the apparent and immediate realities of life in the world to agree with God that the burden of righteousness is a great burden indeed but it is nothing compared to the burden of wickedness. The righteous understand this and make an effort to live accordingly. In word and in deed, they say no to what a fool believes. Let's pray. Lord God, again, we thank you for your word that challenges us, that points us toward what is right and true and good and healthy and wholesome and right. Lord, I, I thank you for your word for us here today. And I pray that you would help us to take to heart what you have for us and how you want us to think about these things and, and then to live in them in the life that you have given to us. Lord, that, that you would help us to say no to the foolish beliefs that tend to motivate people and work but only for a short time. And Lord, instead that you would help us to be by your wisdom and power, your agents of righteousness in the world, however that manifests itself for us and through us. Lord, give us the courage we need, give us the wisdom we need. 
Help us to know your presence with us and help us to hear again and again your, your word of encouragement and truth that we need to hear again and again. And I pray these things in your name and for your sake. Amen.